I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. How's it going, everybody? Go fish. Eli Sussman here for another episode of Fish Bites. All episodes published to the Fish Stripes podcast feed online at fishstripes.com slash podcast. We plug them all on social media at Fish Stripes on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and earlier this month, the Fish Stripes YouTube channel has been launched. A lot of pod clips up there, Marlin's highlights, and some exclusive video coverage coming there as well. Please subscribe to Fish Stripes on YouTube as well and all those other places. Make sure you, you get all elements of our Miami Marlins coverage heading into this exciting 2020 year. A heads up, I'll be toying around with some different audio production elements on this episode, such as this segue into Marlins Weekly News, taking notes of all the team's transactions and announcements since the previous Fish Bites. We have a couple trades to discuss, don't we? Uh, when the Marlins had agreed to terms with outfielder Corey Dickerson and catcher Francisco Cervelli, their 40-man roster was completely full, which forced the Marlins to designate a couple players for assignment in order to clear space and make those signings official. They decided to continue what's been somewhat of a trend this offseason, which is totally revamping their entire major league bullpen coming off a year where they really struggled especially down the stretch we saw earlier in the offseason Tyrone Guerrero get um DFA'd and then claimed off waivers same thing for uh, Tyler Kinley and the most recent ones that their situations were just resolved this past week right-hander Kyle Keller and also right-hander Austin Bryce both of them ultimately traded first one being Kyle Keller who had just made his major league debut late in the 2019 season, uh, a former late-round draft pick who put up great strikeout numbers all throughout the minor leagues. Limited major league sample size wasn't all that impressive, but not much to judge it on. He was traded to the Angels for catching prospect Jose Estrada, and uh, it's a pretty light return. It's All things considered, it's the type of trade that I was anticipating, where we mentioned the 40-man roster has been crammed this entire offseason. It's going to continue to be uh, very difficult to squeeze more people on that in the near future because of how much depth the Marlins have created as an organization. A lot of guys that are either ready for their debut or will be very shortly. And uh, so guys that are more fringy, uh, Keller being one of them, despite his good minor league numbers, heading into his age 27 season without much track record in the majors at all, uh, they found him to be expendable and 
they were going to flip him for somebody that did not need 40-man roster protection. That means someone very young and inexperienced and, frankly, risky. So they end up with Estrada, who um, is 19 years old. He's heading into his age 20 season, and he has only had one professional season under his belt in the Angels system. He is a, he's a catcher. And last year in the Dominican Summer League, 247 batting average, 335 on base, 305 slugging. It's an 87 weighted runs created plus. Remember where 100 is your league average. He's a slightly below average hitter, uh, but he's a catcher. And he also had a few innings at second base as well, which is interesting. Uh, I think the most important factor here is that he has a pre-existing relationship with Eddie Rodriguez. Eddie Rodriguez is um, a Cuban descent who was born and raised, well, not born, <laughs> he was raised in Miami and um, went to the University of Miami, had a career, a long career in pro ball. And last year, he was in the Angels organization as a catching instructor. Heading into 2020, he's been newly hired as the Marlins Major League Catching Coach. And he had a relationship with Estrada last year in the Angels organization. I was a little surprised by that, considering that Estrada, by all accounts, was a low-profile signing originally and uh, has never played organized games in the U.S. But um, So I'd be curious exactly how well they know each other, but Eddie Rodriguez gave a pretty strong endorsement of Estrada based on what they know, where he's a guy that learned English extremely quickly. He was a fast learner on and off the field. Um, as the experience would dictate, just one pro season, uh, and, not, and um, both offensively and defensively, um, the results don't overwhelm you. One thing that I'll stress on this episode, and we'll be doing a lot moving forward, is that you never want to weigh stats in rookie ball heavily whatsoever. Those are the least significant stats at, a, at any level of affiliated professional baseball. Uh, with Estrada, he's just 19 years old last year. Most of the competition that he was facing, on average, were even younger than he was. 16, 7, well, 17, 18-year-olds, for the most part, populate the Dominican Summer League. And um, there's just not a whole lot to judge on because those players are so far away from being the ultimate versions of themselves. And especially offensively, you're, you're facing a lot of guys that just can't throw the ball where they want to at this stage of their careers or have very limited pitch arsenals, maybe only one or two pitches that they trust to throw in any situation. Don't want to weigh the stats too much. Uh, I think the recommendation from Eddie Rodriguez is worth noting. Um, I wouldn't say that he had a direct input on making this trade happen, but the Marlins were always going to go with somebody that is uh, very young and didn't need 40-man protection, building up some depth. As you know, the catcher position is arguably the thinnest position in the Marlins organization right now. Use the high draft pick on Will Banfield, who I'm still very optimistic about. Uh, behind him in the minor leagues, there's uh, not a whole lot that you can really rely on in terms of being future major league contributors. Uh, they acquired another guy from the Angels organization in the Rule 5 draft, Julian Leon. So that's a little interesting that they did get, this is now the second catcher in uh, less than two months that they have got from the Angels organization at a minimal price. Uh, but the bottom line with Estrada is that if you were a 19-year-old in the Dominican Summer League heading into age 20 without any experience in pro ball in the U.S., uh, the odds of those guys 
even making it to the majors are extremely, extremely low. And just considering this guy was a relatively inexpensive signing, uh, tools don't really jump off the charts. Otherwise, there would have been more competition from his services initially. Um, don't get your hopes up. This just seems like um, the Marlins essentially just picking up a lottery ticket in order to uh, clear a roster spot for a guy in Keller that they didn't feel all that confident in long term. Uh, of course, wishing good luck to Keller. And this relationship between the Marlins and the Angels organizations uh, is something to watch. Uh, moving forward, just consider that we're now up to quite a few transactions between those two teams in recent years. Remember, it was last offseason that they made a trade to clear roster space, selling, sending a former top pitching prospect Dylan Peters to the Angels after he his stock was down for a reliever in Tyler Stevens. During the 2019 season, they got Cesar Pueyo from the Angels, and uh, people were a little overexcited about that. It didn't all ultimately amount to much at all when Pueyo was hitting pretty well in the majors with the Angels, but they found him expendable, so that was a small cash trade that happened there. Then in the Rule 5 draft, getting Julian Leon this past December, and now this trade with Kyle Keller going to LA and Jose Estrada going back. So that's now four transactions between these two teams in a little over one year's time. Uh, relationships matter in these, this business in Major League Baseball. And clearly these front offices these front offices are on pretty friendly terms and have a good working relationship moving forward. The second trade, somewhat similar to this one that we just discussed, is Austin Bryce going to the Red Sox and the Marlins getting a young fielder in return whose name I'm probably going to butcher, but he is Angeles Santos, an 18-year-old coming off his age, 20, his age 17 season in the Red Sox organization. Um, with Bryce, I was, I was a little disappointed by this one, considering that uh, Austin Bryce is coming off a more successful season, certainly, than Kyle Keller did. Uh, Bryce, for a stretch of time in May, June, very early July, he was arguably the best reliever in the Marlins bullpen at a time when they still had Sergio Romo and they had Nick Anderson. It was Austin Bryce that had, if I remember correctly, a pretty long scoreless streak in there. His ERA was below two for a certain amount of time as well. His, uh, he wasn't, he wasn't allowing that many base runners. Anyway, you look at it, he was pitching very well. Um, had a couple injuries after the All-Star break. One immediately after the All-Star break with a flexor tendon strain. Came back not that far later than that, but then re-aggravated his elbow injury and uh, struggled a lot in between. He just did not look right. A handful of uh, pitching appearances where he um, he had a streak where he gave up home runs in four consecutive outings as a reliever which is, uh, even in this era of high home runs, it's unthinkable. It's clear something was wrong, and he has not pitched in the majors since then. He finished the year on the injured list with that elbow injury. Uh, the thing that always stuck out to us about Bryce during the season is that he was throwing his curveball a lot, and he was getting some good success with that pitch. He, his spin rate on his curveball was elite, and I, I think that's something that's difficult to sometimes explain, but uh, to quantify it, he gets 2,900 rotations per minute on his curveball. Uh, a guy that was a couple hundred RPM lower than that earlier in his career, and the rate that he had last year, the spin rate on that pitch, was similar to someone like Rich Hill or Charlie Morton, guys that uh, are famous for 
the nastiness of their curveballs and the success that they've had with that pitch. A low price, all things considered, I think, because with Santos, it's another lottery ticket type where he just has one pro season under his belt. It's in the Dominican Summer League. He was a very low profile signing by the Red Sox in the first place in the fall of 2018. And, uh, but as is the case with Jose Estrada, because he's so young and so inexperienced, he does not need a 40-man roster spot now or in the foreseeable future. If you follow Fish Stripes on Twitter, you've already seen this stat about Santos. Last year in the Dominican Summer League, he drew walks in 23.6% of his plate appearances. That was the highest rate for a qualified hitter in minor league baseball last year. Across any league, nearly 1,500 qualified hitters in the minor leagues last year, and nobody walked more frequently than this guy that the Marlins just traded for. That being said, as an overall player, he did not have a lot of success offensively. 184 batting average, um, weighted runs created plus under 100, and uh, struck out even more than he walked at that rate. It didn't hit for any power, no home runs. He did steal 15 bases in 56 games. Um, played a lot of shortstop, and uh, it looks like he had some reps in the corner outfield positions as well in the Red Sox system. But but frankly, if you look back on it, the Red Sox, during the 2018-2019 international signing period, they signed 52 players. Um, 52 players, and uh, Baseball America had a write-up about this international signing class in particular they highlighted 12 players from that class and santos was not one of them so that just goes to show you how deep in the red sox depth chart santos was despite the interesting statistical quirk of how often he walked this past season um it's another guy that you cannot count on to have a major league impact at any point we're going to take it step by step uh, it probably comes to the U.S. next year, at least to extended spring training, and uh, I'll be curious to see whether they actually allow him to participate in Gulf Coast League games and see how that goes. Uh, but in both these cases, both with Keller and the Austin Bryce trade, the Marlins not getting um, much in return in terms of guys you can reasonably count on to having much results at the major league level. And uh, with Santos... It's it's a, difficult to see what the connection is to the Marlins organization, uh, whether they would have anybody that has very good familiarity with Santos. Uh, it, it doesn't seem like the Marlins got good value for that. Bryce was someone that I'm sure a lot of teams uh, would have interest in adding to their bullpen, and he's a guy that uh, on paper you would think would get a much stronger return than Keller did because Bryce is um, coming off his season where he had a ERA in the mid-threes, a guy who's been in the major leagues for a handful of years, um, but is throwing his curveball better than ever. Uh, the indications from him uh, are that he's already throwing in preparation for the 2020 season. If there was a question about his health coming off the elbow I- issues, and of course, certainly that's a risk moving forward, as it is with a lot of other pitchers, yeah, it doesn't seem that he's going to be limited from being available at the start of the 2020 season. And the Marlins bullpen already thin as it is. Um, and they haven't done a whole lot in free agency or in trade to replicate, to um, replace that production that they've lost by designating these guys for assignment. And Bryce was cheap this coming year. He's not yet arbitration eligible. It was still another year before he could even have that eligibility to get earn a big raise. And this is a guy that wasn't really 
thought of as being a closer type, relievers tend to be very affordable during their arbitration years as well. Several folks mentioned to me some parallels between the Bryce situation and Nick Wickren at this time a year ago. I don't think this was quite that bad, um, that at least the Marlins seem to be clearing space for some of their internal options to get a shot at the bullpen. There's still some relievers out there in free agency that we're going to mention in just a few minutes that the Marlins could be targeting to replace someone like Bryce on their roster, but it's it's a head-scratcher. It doesn't it simply doesn't seem that the Marlins got a reasonable value in return for Bryce on the trade market. Uh, I still stand by what I said about Hill as an extension candidate heading into his, his final year, uh, reportedly under contract with the Marlins. Uh, th- this was um, this was disappointing, uh, a move on the edges of the roster that, uh, all things considered, it, it may not have much of an effect at all on the team. But the process that went into this type of trade is confusing, to say the least. Next up, um, after with Keller gone and with Bryce gone, now someone in a similar situation is outfielder Austin Dean. Dean was one of the longest tenured members of this Marlins organization, a uh, 2012 draft pick out of high school in Texas. He uh, faced a few roadblocks along the way in his development, mainly because of some fluky injuries. He got himself into the best shape of his life two years ago, and he proceeded to light up the high minors in AA with Jacksonville, then AAA New Orleans. He was the runaway winner for Marlins Minor League Player of the Year in 2018, and then he got called up to the show and had a, a couple of nice performances. And swinging a hot bat, he's got a chance for more. Yep, there you go. How about that? Down the right field line, Austin D. A career night, pal. Wallach scores. Mickey Rowe is coming around. Here's the throw. In 2019, he was poised to have an even bigger role on the team, but uh, he struggled out of the gate, especially defensively, as a primarily as a left outfielder. Uh, one exception to that being his unforgettable uh, throw uh, during warmups in a late game in September, knocking down a, a beer pyramid in the stands. One of the few viral moments uh, while the Marlins were. Uh, playing out the string in September. Uh, Aside from that, during the actual action that mattered, he underwhelmed as an overall player uh, below replacement level, uh, as determined by both baseball reference and by fan graphs, as a hitter below average, although there are some indications in his batted ball data that he may have been a little unlucky offensively. I guess the larger point is that he, he just fell victim to a numbers game. The outfield, in contrast to catcher, outfield is probably the deepest position in the Marlins organization at this time, and the one where they have a lot of options that are either major league ready or close to being major league ready. And this is about uh, projecting the best case scenario with these players, where Dean. Um, I think a lot of people would expect him to be a better hitter moving forward than he has been the past couple years in limited major league action. But if he's going to be such a liability defensively, they gave him a shot to uh, shift to first base at the very end of this past season. But the Marlins also have a great internal option for that in terms of Lewin Diaz, uh, even Garrett Cooper, based on what he did last year. It's just not clear whether Dean is superior to their many other internal options which is why they uh, they ultimately decide to 
cut bait with him. His situation is still pending as we're recording this, uh, seven full days to resolve it. Um, and we'll we'll see what happens to that. I wouldn't expect much more in return than they got for uh, Austin Bryce. Uh, if there is any team that would value him a lot, it would be a rebuilding team in the American League where he can get some reps as a designated hitter so as to not cost him his team much defensively in the field. Um, but he was so well regarded as a uh, clubhouse presence there. There's a lot of examples of that, both in the minor leagues and in the major leagues of him bringing so much enthusiasm to the dugout and a guy that has a lot of interests outside of baseball. He's on behalf of fish stripes, wishing all the best to Austin Dean. And uh, I, w- I wouldn't be upset at all if he had great success on the field for another major league organization. on Friday was the deadline for exchanging salary figures with your arbitration eligible players. The way the Marlins treat it as a file and trial team, it's a hard deadline with which to uh, get those arbitration eligible players under contract. They had a four-player class for 2020, uh, Jonathan VR, Jesus Aguilar, Jose Ureña, and Adam Conley. With VR, with Urania, and with Connolly, they were able to agree to deals, all of them one-year deals, and uh, all of them less expensive than had been projected by uh, the best estimates that we had out there. Uh, Aguilar was not able to come to an agreement with the Marlins on his one-year deal. They are heading to an arbitration hearing in February with Aguilar filing for a $2.575 million salary, the Marlins countering with two point three to five million dollars and it's a gap of only two hundred and fifty thousand dollars and i say that knowing that for you and i two hundred and fifty thousand dollars is um could be life-altering amount of money um and it could be for aguilar too which is uh why i don't blame him at all for trying to i wouldn't call it a holdout but really sticking to his conviction that he deserved more than the Marlins are willing to offer him. This is a guy that is arbitration eligible for the first time in his career. So this represents, regardless of a very big raise over what he has earned in his previous seasons combined, really. I mean, this is going to double his career salary if he does play out the season. Um, but it's another questionable move from the trade, from the team, I should say. Just as I took exception to how this Austin Bryce situation played out, it doesn't seem like they got a good value for that. Uh, I'm not sure why the Marlins are um, so reluctant to like concede a, a couple extra bucks in this situation and meet Aguilar at his midpoint in this situation. Based on projections from MLB trade rumors, they thought Aguilar was in line for $2.5 million. His filing is very, very similar to that. And uh, if you look across the league, there are a couple dozen players heading towards arbitration hearings as well, uh, but none of them are doing it over such a small difference of opinions. Uh, usually when you do that and go to a hearing, it's a matter of uh, of millions of dollars that you're a part in negotiations. There's a big gap that um, you're unable to bridge. Uh, but it's just, it's just a little mind-boggling to me that these two sides couldn't figure it out. And for the Marlins in a year where they aren't all that pressed for money, I wouldn't think. They by all accounts, they're going to spend less money on this Marlins team as currently projected than they did in 2019. Just think about that. This is a team 
that the narrative has been throughout the offseason, I guess, quite correctly, that they've made a lot of low-risk, high-reward moves. Um, They're opening up space for their talented young players to shine. This team is one of the more improved teams across all of baseball this offseason, based on the uh, 105 losses they suffered the previous year. Uh, that, That being said, there's room for them to make an even bigger jump if they weren't being so cheap. They're going to spend less money while expecting fans to um, invest more in the team than they did last year. Based on the projection model from Matt Schwartz of MLB Trade Rumor, the foursome of VR, Urania, Conley, and Aguilar were supposed to cost about $18.5 million to the Marlins this coming season. But in reality, once the Aguilar case is settled, the total is only going to be about $16 million. So that's an extra $2.5 million in unexpected um, financial flexibility that the team has right now. And with that being said, I highly, highly encourage them to do something with that money if they really want fans to believe that they're invested in taking a big leap forward this year there is one clear glaring weakness that this team has and it's the bullpen they've done a lot of subtraction this offseason some of it you could say addition by subtraction with getting rid of pitchers that did not throw strikes and were not successful in high leverage situations but with the most recent ones Kyle Keller especially Austin Bryce these are downgrades and the Marlins have not done much to address it They've signed Jimmy Garcia. They've taken a flyer on a, a couple non-roster invitees that some of them have limited major league experience. Um, some of them are far removed from being successful in the major leagues. Uh, as things currently stand, this bullpen is going to suck. And um, even in the most optimistic scenario where some of their prospects break through, um, it's just not reasonable to believe that this team is going to have any success in close games. A lot of frustrating losses on deck, just like we've witnessed the past couple years. And so now you have more money than would have been expected to have to fill out the roster, and there's still some options available in free agency. So for our final segment of this podcast episode, I'm going to run through a half dozen remaining free agent options for the Marlins. At a time, if they're willing to let some of their other relievers go without getting all that much in return, I don't think it's realistic to expect the Marlins to trade for a reliever knowing how volatile the position is. Uh, going after a veteran reliever doesn't guarantee anything. I mean, that's that's what I'll be very clear about is that none of these guys are guaranteed to be great this coming year. All of them are old or on the older side of their career. Um, given how few reps a reliever gets over the course of the season, a couple bad outings could um, sour his entire stat line for the season. So so none of these guys are, are safe bets, but you'd like to see the team at least make an effort to improve. What exactly are they going to be looking for in relievers in free agency? Um, well, I think the easiest prerequisite is to have somebody that has closing experience because you look across the entire organization right now and there's nobody. There's nobody on the Marlins 40-man roster. A stat that has been circulating quite a bit is that the career saves leader among anybody on the active roster is Drew Steckenrider with six saves coming off a very serious elbow injury and a very bad 2018 season. He's the one that has saved more games than anybody else on the Marlins roster. And if you want to expand that a little bit among all the pitchers they'll have in Major League Camp, Ryan Cook has 17 career saves. He was an all-star with the Oakland A's. 
about eight years ago. He most recently was pitching in Japan. Uh, he's several years removed from having anything close to an average major league season, but at least he has some experience in that situation, the intangibles to handle it if he does make the roster, 17 saves. That's going to be the threshold that I'm looking for in free agents is somebody with more saves than anybody currently in Marlins Major League Camp. We're looking at pitchers with at least 18 career saves. Another issue with the Marlins last year was too many free passes. As a bullpen overall, they walked about 11% of all batters faced. That, that includes some with the bases loaded to walk in extra runs. This team did not have consistency throwing strikes. And that's partially reflected in some of the moves they've made this offseason. The addition by subtraction, getting rid of guys that cannot throw strikes in high leverage situations. They, um, if they're looking to add, if they're looking to spend real money on one other reliever, it should preferably be a guy that has some track record in the majors of being able to go after hitters. That's going to be another criteria we look at is a career walk rate below 10%. At least 18 career saves walk rate below 10%, and somebody that actually pitched in the majors in 2019. That means having a guy that is definitely going to be available to pitch on opening day, That especially during the start of the season. Uh, they have some exciting prospects that are, might be ready to break through during the season, and some internal roles, uh, particularly guys like George Guzman and Alex Vesia, uh, guys that have very interesting skill sets that could potentially translate into great relief work during the season, not as opening day candidates. So you want guys who pitched this past year, at least 18 career saves, who walk less than 10% of their batters faced. And I came up with a list of nine pitchers. And uh, as I'll explain later, there's really only six clear candidates that I believe the Marlins should be ready to spend on in free agency. Uh, and, And frankly, it would be great if they picked up multiple pitchers from the following list to reinforce their 2020 bullpen. With less than one month until pitchers and catchers report to Jupiter, the first of our free agent relief targets for the Marlins, just going in alphabetical order, Cody Allen. Cody Allen, best known for being a very good closer for the Cleveland Indians, But this past year with the Angels was a big departure from his prime form, a 6-2-6 ERA, a 8.39 fielder independent pitching, uh, nearly one win below replacement level, only 23 innings last season before he was released. The Angels paid quite a bit, I think $8.5 million to bring him in, if not as their closer, then at least as a a very important late-ending arm, and he was a total bust. And this is somewhat of a continuation of a trend that had showed itself the previous year in 2018 with the Indians. It's why they didn't make a strong effort to re-sign him. But for his career overall, he's been really good in the majors. A 314 ERA, 3.43 fielder independent pitching, about seven wins above replacement, 464 career innings in the majors. And uh, he just barely meets the standard that I said a moment ago about walk rate. His career walk rate after being bloated last year is now up to 9.9%. We wanted to keep it below 10%. And uh, another discouraging trend is that his four-seam fastball has been losing its oomph 
to it. He's a two-pitch pitcher, just a four-seamer and a curve. Uh, during his prime, his four-seamer sat 95, 96 miles per hour. There's a good differential between that and the curve. And this past year, a career-low 92.2 miles per hour on average with that pitch. So, so this is a guy that was heading in the wrong direction. He's not that far removed from being one of the better relievers in the majors, though. So he's someone that I believe could be had uh, potentially on a minor league deal, not even on a major league deal. This whole exercise is built around the idea that the Marlins need late ending experience and they need um, and they should spend the money that they were able to save in their pre-arbitration negotiations. So uh, Allen, he's a name that came up on this query when we looked at guys with a certain amount of saves, the walk rate, the recency of pitching in the majors, and at least 100 career relief appearances in the majors. Uh, He checked all those boxes, uh, some of them just barely. Um, He's he's clearly not a a prime target for the Marlins at this stage, but he's someone that as they fill out their non-roster invitee list to spring training, uh, maybe he's someone that would expect a certain amount of performance bonuses if he makes roster. I'm totally fine with that. I think this is a nice, um, low-risk, solid reward pickup that the Marlins should seriously consider. Next up, alphabetical order, we're going with Luke Gregerson, who had a 7.94 ERA in the majors last year, but a 3.04 fielder independent pitching. All that's really messy because it was such a small sample size, only five and two-thirds innings pitched last year as he dealt with some injuries. Uh, clearly on the downside of his career, but it's been an excellent career. Overall, a 3.15 ERA in the majors, a 3.18 FIP and uh, nearly nine wins above replacement over the course of 617 innings. His last solid season came with the Astros in 2016, and uh, more so than anybody on this list, he tries to get you with his unconventional delivery uh, rather than with his raw stuff. His main pitch is his sinker, which only averaged 86.4 miles per hour last year. Uh, He also has a slider and a four-seamer. Uh, a little unclear what his price would be. Um, it's possible he's could be had on a incentive laden minor league deal, just like Allen could. Uh, might cost a little bit more than that because Gregerson, he had quite a bit of success in his past, uh, primarily with the Padres, also with the Astros. Just another guy who has been there and done that quite a bit. Uh, and for competitive teams as well, not not so much the Padres, but those Astros teams that um, contended for the playoffs in 2015 and 2016. Gregerson has been around, and the fact that he was able to do it back in the day with uh, most people would consider well below average stuff, uh, he could be a very valuable voice to bring into spring training and to counsel some of the young arms that the Marlins are going to be relying on quite a bit in the next few years. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Uh, next on the list, Jeremy Jeffress, a 5.02 ERA last year, a 3.96 fielder independent pitching, uh, 0.2 wins above replacement, and that was over the course of 52 innings pitched. Our um, 
our friends at Marlin Maniac and also at the Fish Across the Pond podcast both advocated for signing Jeffries. And uh, after looking deep into this and more so at the lack of decent alternatives on the market, I could definitely see why the Marlins would be a fit for him. He is a 316 career ERA, a 362 career FIP, about four wins above replacement in over 400 career innings in the majors. Jeffries has a better raw stuff than certainly than Gregerson does, and you could say even better than Cody Allen at this stage of their respective careers. His sinker averages almost 94 miles per hour. He's got a four-seamer. He's got a cutter. He has a splitter. He's a ground ball specialist, as, as you would probably guess by the sinker, a 57-career uh, ground ball rate, um, although a little concerning that that took a big dip last year back down to being much closer to the league average. When he's on, he's able to get a, a lot of really harmless contact, a lot of ground balls. Uh, as the Marlins are shaping up right now defensively, um, they have potential, especially later in the year, to be a really good defensive team. Uh, of course, with Miguel Rojas, depending on how much Brian Anderson plays at third base, uh, expecting some improvement from Isan Diaz. And um, if later in the year, um, Lewin Diaz gets called up at first base, but even in the meantime, someone like Jesus Aguilar actually has a good defensive reputation. There's another connection there that I actually hadn't thought of when preparing the podcast between uh, Jeffries and Aguilar and also Jonathan VR. All three of them played together for the Milwaukee Brewers for a certain stretch of time. Uh, at this stage of the offseason, when there's just not that many alternatives out there in free agency, I think those relationships matter. And um, so that's another reason why Jeffries can make sense. Um, despite the bloated ERA that he had last year, uh, considering how good he was just the previous year, he's one of the most effective relievers in baseball on those 2018 Brewers. Uh, he's going to command a major league deal for sure. Probably just a one-year deal, um, no more than a couple million dollars. But um, he, he's someone that I would definitely like to see the Marlins, if they haven't already, uh, to engage with Jeffries. Uh, well, well regarded for being an, an energetic individual in the clubhouse, and uh, I think most importantly, over the last five years, he has averaged sixty-three appearances per season. So hardly any serious injuries whatsoever in his recent history, despite now being in his mid-30s. It shouldn't be all that expensive to acquire him, and someone that come the trade deadline, if he's being really successful, teams can look at his track record and uh, feel pretty confident that they can acquire him and uh, expect him to contribute down the stretch and be willing to give up some interesting young pieces for the Marlins to uh, further reinforce their future. Free agent reliever candidate number four, Sean Kelly, a 4.94 ERA last year, 5.52 FIP. He was slightly below replacement level overall, and that was over the course of 47 and a third innings pitched. Um, his career overall, uh, not quite as impressive as the others that we've discussed, 380 ERA, 398 FIP. Uh, more or less just your average uh, middle reliever setup man at times. Um He's pitched a lot in the majors, 464 and two-thirds innings pitched. His uh, only one career year where he really stuck in the bullpen at a major league level throughout the whole season. So that's a, a pretty big departure for Jeffries, who um, has been very consistent at at least staying healthy in the major leagues. Kelly only has one full, full major league season, and that was with the Nationals in 2016. 
uh, a two-pitch pitcher, slider, and a four-seamer. The four-seamer averages about 92 miles per hour. So he's not the sexiest option on this list for sure. Not sure what the big upside is uh, with him. Uh, I mean, given the way that the market is this offseason, there's a chance that he requires a major league deal, but I have to imagine that he would be cheaper than Jeffries because of just his overall body of work isn't quite as good, and especially over the past couple years, not quite the same guy. But he has at times had um, some excellent swing and miss stuff at his very best between those two pitches when he has when he's tunneling as he as you want between the four seamer and the slider and keeping headers guessing by throwing them almost uh, in any count and throwing those two pitches almost interchangeably. He can have uh, decent stretches of success. So <laughs> Kelly is, is not the flashiest guy, but we are going with the players that came up in this query. He does have some closing experience, just like Allen and Gregerson and Jeffress does at times in his career, and um, someone that, considering the current state of the Marlins bullpen, you bring in Kelly, and uh, I think he makes the group overall slightly deeper than it currently is. Uh, My favorite option on this entire list is Branton Kinsler, who had a 2.68 ERA last year, a 3.56 FIP, about one win above replacement in 57 innings for the Cubs. He had also previously pitched with the Brewers and uh, perhaps most notably with the Twins. First career, a 3.37 ERA, a 3.73 FIP, over 400 innings. There's, he's interesting. He's interesting because he's, he's not all that flashy. Like Jeffries, he's a ground ball machine. Uh, his career ground ball rate is almost the same as as Jeffress's, and uh, including last year. So that's the main distinction between him and Jeffress. It's what's going to get Kinsler paid, I think, better than anybody else on this list. Is that even as recently as last year, he was pretty close to his peak form. He was doing all the things that had made him successful the past handful of years. He has a a sinker, changeup, slider, very occasionally a four seamer. As I dug into this, I was actually kind of surprised that he throws as hard as he does. I'd always thought of him as somewhat of a junk baller because he doesn't really miss a ton of bats, but his sinker actually averaged 92 and a half miles per hour last season. So he throws almost as hard as Jeffers does. And, um, at least last year he threw slightly harder than uh, Cody Allen does. So that certainly doesn't match the perception that those, both those players have. I like him a lot. I think he's very clearly the best free agent reliever remaining on the market. And um, we saw a lot of guys at the top end of the market get more than was expected. The Marlins had interest, we believe, in Sergio Romo and weren't able, weren't willing to guarantee him $5 million that he got to return to the Twins. So it's going to, we'll, we'll see how what their tolerance is for Kinsler. He should be slightly cheaper than Romo. Uh, I'm not totally sure on that. Uh, again, the impetus for this whole conversation is that the Marlins are spending less on their 2020 roster than they did in 2019. So they should have some wiggle room here where um, it really shouldn't be all that much about the price point at this point. They they should be willing to bid against just about any other team that's still looking for relief help. But Kinsler is a guy that just based on his most recent year is uh, his career overall. He's going to draw interest from some competitive teams as well. If if he's a guy that really prioritizes being on a 
contending team because he has been in the past before with the Cubs. Um, he also pitched with the Nationals. I, I should mention that briefly uh, the year before. And then with uh, when the Brewers and the Twins, I mean, he's a guy that in most of his years in the majors, his team has been in the mix, at least for a playoff spot. So that preference may um, have a role here in what team he ultimately goes to. But I think the Marlins should be making him their top priority at this point in the offseason. And the final featured reliever that we're going to discuss here is Blake Parker, who had a five, I should say, the final featured reliever we're going to discuss here is Blake Parker, a 4.55 ERA, a 5.07 fielder independent pitching, about replacement level over the course of 61 in a third innings pitched. If you've seen Parker, he has a very unconventional delivery, a very deliberate delivery that uh, I think if he's on your team, you really like the quirkiness. If you're facing him, you're kind of irritated by it and how deliberate he is to slow down the game. First career in the majors, a 3.56 ERA, uh, FIP slightly below four over the course of 285 and two-thirds innings pitched. Uh, doesn't throw hard, 91-mile-an-hour fastball. Also throws a, a splitter, a curveball, and an occasional cutter, so he mixes those pitches up. Uh, falls into the same category, I would say, as Sean Kelly, where not coming off a particularly good year, yeah, he seems to be past his peak, but he does have some background closing games. Uh, if you do have to sign him to a major league deal, it's not going to be with all that much of a guarantee attached to it. So my optimal approach to this relief situation is either Kinsler or Jeffries. I don't think you could go wrong with either of those two. And then pairing them with um, one of these other secondary guys, whether it's Allen, Gregerson, Kelly, or Parker, uh, bringing in two guys as tight as the current roster is. And although that's been a challenge all offseason to find space on the 40-man roster without giving up on any intriguing young guys, uh, this bullpen could be a disaster. I mean, as things currently stand, it could be the worst bullpen in the majors last year. Uh, I guess we were, we were thinking that last year, and then uh, Romo had a good bounce back, and Nick Anderson kind of came out of nowhere to be really great. But uh, overall, this team is, is not really setting itself up to take a, a huge leap forward unless they pay more attention and invest a little bit more in this relief course. Just a quick mention of a couple other guys that came up on the same search when I was looking for guys with closing experience, um, who throw strikes, pitched in the majors last year. Tommy Hunter came up there, but he had surgery on his elbow late last summer. Not fully trustworthy to be available for the start of the season. He's had a good career, but the timing isn't right. Uh, Jen Mar Gomez, you may remember, was the closer for the Phillies at the nadir of their rebuild. A guy that... um. It got an opportunity kind of by default because they didn't have any other good options in their bullpen, but he is so far removed from pitching in any important innings. He's uh, He just hasn't been a significant pitcher in the majors since the middle of that Phillies rebuilds uh, about four or five years ago. And also Sam Dyson's name came up in the search. He's a former Marlin. He was decent last year in the major leagues, although a little inconsistent. I decided to cross him off this list because Major League Baseball is still investigating him uh, for a potential domestic violence incident. Uh, the Marlins, especially under this new ownership, have been pretty clear about steer- about avoiding anybody anybody that has uh, these kind of serious character questions about him. Zero tolerance policy for guys 
potentially involved with harming another person or, or skirting the rules in any other way. So he, he's a pretty clear um, no for me at this stage um, based on the details that we currently have about his significant other. But even with that, you got six names that I think are pretty clear upgrades for the Marlins bullpen that could be important veteran presences in spring training. Even if, a, if some of those guys don't aren't quite major league caliber at this stage, even if they don't make the team, it's important for the Marlins to bring in sage veterans to be around their younger arms. This is a, a rebuild that is going to be led ultimately by the pitching depth that this organization has. And by the end of the season, we could see a lot of these really exciting former top prospects break through to the majors and have pretty quick success. But uh, to best put them in that position, you want to surround them with pitchers who have been there before and had some success and are at a stage of their careers where they're willing to be mentors towards uh, towards the next generation. And uh, I think even at this late stage in the offseason, you have a handful of these really intriguing options that could fill that necessary role on the 2020 Marlins. My commentary on this episode is a little bit shorter than usual because I wanted to dedicate the final segment of it to Danny Martinez. He hosted Fish Bites for most of the 2019 Marlins season. He has recently returned to the public on both Twitter and on YouTube by launching his series Marlins Unfiltered. Uh, The first episode just coming out on Friday. What you're about to listen to is episode two titled the time to bury rebuild conversation he wants to move on from dwelling about what the marlins used to be under their old core and focus on uh, all the current talent that is presently in the organization and the the management style that is currently in charge of the marlins uh, so make sure to subscribe to him he's on youtube his account titled danny m be sure to find him right there and while you're at it of course subscribe to fish stripes on youtube as well uh, but here it is uh, marlin's unfiltered episode two with danny uh, this has been eli sussman great speaking to all you guys again as we inch closer to spring training go fish here's danny state of the union of the marlins looking from 2017 right the rebuild to where they are right now what has gone right what has maybe not gone so perfectly and more importantly i really want to get this point across let's have this conversation for the last time because because i'm tired of it i'm tired of having the conversation now i understand this is a product of the rebuild we are the status of the marlins right now is because they chose to rebuild and reconstruct their roster to pursue sustainability, something people will not ever understand, but like I told you in the first video, baseball acumen, I'm gonna talk to you like you do, to build sustainability. But I'm tired of always having to rehash the entire conversation. Questions like, should they have rebuilt? I'm tired of having those conversations because the year is 2020, we are quite literally living in January 2020. And that rebuild happened two plus years ago. And there are so much positives around it that it's frustrating that we have to continue hearing only the negatives because those are the only people that have enough time to waste to continue hashing on the negatives. But let's have the conversation one last time and then bury it deep into the farthest way that we can go in the Everglades. Let's start. The year is 2017. The Miami Marlins are nowhere, nowhere near competing 
in the National League, not in the National League East, and not in the National League overall as a wild card. You can sit there and you can say whatever you want that have gone and gotten two veteran arms. Number one, there weren't any veteran arms that even using hindsight you could go back at and say if they would have signed them, using full hindsight, knowing how they performed wherever they went, that they would have taken a 78-win team or 75-win team to the playoffs. So that little theory you could just throw out into the rest of the fantasy. It's the unicorn pitcher theory and it does not work. My goodness, look at all of the talent. Why did they rebuild? Let me list out all of the talent that everyone always discuss, right? Giancarlo stands coming off of an MVP year. Christian Yelich is not yet an MVP, so they did not trade away two MVPs, but I get it. He becomes an MVP the next following year because he goes to a boon box and the NL Central and hits 40 plus home runs. D. Gordon, all right. JT Ramuto a year later. Marcelo Zuna. Those are the big trades. Those are the big names. All of those stars together, listen very carefully, averaged 75 ones. From the moment that they played together to the moment that they were traded away, they averaged a total score that started with a seven, or even a 500 team, averaged 75 wins. One of them had a bloated contract that Loria and everybody with even one IQ of baseball knew was gonna be traded away once the backloaded part of it came into play. He was always gone. Whatever the drama was with Yelich, I don't care to discuss it, but he was gone. Ozuna, a rental player, right? Two years, he's a free agent right now, still in the free agent market, I wonder why, gone. And then JT Ruimuto with the reports that he also wanted to trade, so there's some drama there too, also was a rental, gone. As we sit here right now in 2020, Marcelo Zuna would have been a free agent. JT Ramuto was about to be a free agent and the finances of the Miami Marlins would be worse than I don't even know the kind of example I could throw at you because of Stanton's bloated contract and because the inability for South Florida to support a team that isn't winning championships every year like the Miami Heat. It is unrealistic to think that this rebuild should not have happened. So that first sentence and that first question of should they have rebuilt? I want you to know that I had to censor myself before on other platforms. I don't have to hear idiotic if that's still a question that we're answering. Of course they had to rebuild. It's something that I was saying before Jeter and Sherman even took over the franchise. It was something that we were discussing should have happened in 2016 after, or rather going into 2017, the, the death of Jose Fernandez, the tragedy of him and his friends that they all lost their lives. After that, the Marlins were destined for a rebuild. Basic level of things that piss me off, it is the people that still think should the Marlins have rebuilt or not, or the YouTube content creators that do MLB the show rosters of what would have happened if they would have kept the Marlins together. Let me tell you something, 75 wins. That's your answer. We, we don't have to know what would have happened. We saw what happened. And in a world where you can't make unrealistic trade scenarios like in the show, it would have been, hear me out, 75 wins. Do you know why? It's not because there wouldn't have been money. Trust me, the debt that Loria left, there wouldn't have been money anyway, but let's say that there was. No, it is because the Marlins had zero pitching and zero farm system. They had the worst ranked farm system in baseball, and I believe they were ranked either bottom three or bottom five prior to the rebuild when we're talking about starting pitching. You don't win in baseball with three stud position players, no pitching and no farm system that could supplement the talent. This is not basketball. Maybe that's why you don't understand it. But for those of us that do, like the many of the individuals that are listening to this and looking at this right now, 
you understand the frustration when people say, should they have rebuilt? Let's bury that part. How did they rebuild is a different question. The answer to that question is they did a somewhat risky job of targeting superstar ceilings, but very low floors in the trades. They have course corrected that in the drafts and in their international signings, but in the trades, the initial trades, they did absolutely go get the pitchers were flamethrowers that had K versus walk tendencies that were an issue. The hitters were lively 60 grade power and good glove, but 40, 45 grade hitting and contact. We don't know if that will pan out. Some of you will say it hasn't already panned out with a Lewis Brinson. It may plan out with an Isan Diaz and a Monte Harrison. It panned out with Sandy Alcantara. Will it pan out with a George Guzman? We don't know, and these are the questions that we'll continue to ask, and we'll still be allowed to talk about the rebuild in that situation, but that's what they did. They targeted high superstar ceiling. They continued that with the Jazz Chisholm trade versus Zach Gallen. Zach Gallen has a very safe floor. For those of you all of a sudden anointing him a future Cy Young, let me remind you, I was the one who called him someone who wasn't just a throw-in piece in that Ozuna trade, while most of the people that now think he's a Cy Young were telling me that he was just a throw-in and that he would be a back-of-the-end rotation. So don't flip now because it's easy. Stick to your conviction. I won't change my conviction. Back then I told you he's not a throw-in. Nothing has changed. I don't think all of a sudden now he has an ace material. I don't think he has a number two material. I think he's still going to be a solid mid-rotation piece. And he got traded from a position of strength for a Jazz Chisholm, a position of weakness. We didn't have a superstar caliber shortstop. Low levels, Nassim Nunez, Osiris Johnson, even though he was hurt, and some others. But a Jazz Chisholm that could be at Marlins Park, web gems at shortstop while hitting 30 home runs as early as this September, is not something we had in our farm system. So the Marlins have been aggressive. And Graphs put out an article a year ago praising them for this, saying that it's not the safest or conservative way to do a rebuild, but that it's a new way and it's an aggressive way. And that if even 15% of their prospects that they've inherited over the last year and a year and change hit, well, you have a continuous playoff team in South Florida that's not named the Miami Heat because the talent is there because they have an elite farm system in place as we stand right now in January of 2020. Because they have a top half of MLB young rotation at the major league level. Because they have young pieces in a George Alfaro, in a Brian Anderson who's an above average third baseman and right fielder. In someone like an Isan Diaz, which we discussed in the first episode, was on pace for 18 home runs and an above average defensive run saved at second base. This is coming together. This isn't an imagination. This isn't a fantasy. If there's something that you want to counter, do so in the comments section. But the belief that the state of the Marlins is a uh, pathetic, lowly team is something of the past. And if you are still with that mentality, then you're not paying attention.